Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which I say definitely count. And I think in 2021, we're going to have to wait and see because we haven't had an annual yet this year. And I think that track record is going to remain pretty solid. Right. I mean, you know, nothing says counting like calling yourself an annual and not releasing annually. But, you know, I, I, I digress because I am indeed the, the mischievous... I'm going to, that's how I'm going to start 2021 by pronouncing it correctly, apparently. Mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count. The Amazing Spider Man indexes count. And Dan, while I did not purchase every single one, I purchased six of the seven giant size Spider Mans recently. So I'm going to say at least those six count. Because I don't think you have those, right? Well, well, Mark, I think I think I do, I don't have those. I ha- I do have a, the giant sized man thing and Spider Man, which is I guess is one of those. I, I do want to say this, you know, twenty twenty an unusual year to put it at the least, but also a year in which we saw two annuals for for in a year. So, Mark, you know, may, maybe that was the like the prophecy of doom was what we 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 flew too close to the sun with these annuals and it has just sparked a a, a cosmic retribution in the form of covid-19. Yes, I will say that is why we had a pandemic all, all because of <laughs> all because of the annuals. Anyway, let's continue with the show. <laughs> yeah, too much of a good thing. Well, hey everybody, welcome to 2021 and thank you for joining us for this special episode of the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Yeah, and if you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. We got so many of them listed up there. I don't even know some of those had podcasts, but they do, and they have ours, so do it there. There's even more that have than this. Check out on iTunes, prominently Spotify. All these places are a great place to tune into our show. And, you know, we're here live on YouTube because every other week we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show and sprinkled in between. We review new comics, although 2020 was a lot more of the new comics than the seasonal stuff. But don't worry, we're going to get back on track shortly with season five. And we've also done a lot of interviews with some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. So if you haven't listened to all of those, go back and check them out. But today we're doing something a little bit different. As it's a new year and a new start for this show, today makes marks the perfect time to start listening. Mark, 
What are we going to be doing today? Yeah, Dan, in today's episode to celebrate the new year and, you know, depending on uh, your your opinion on the matter of the new decade, Dan and I are going to be looking back on the past decade of Spider-Man comics to choose what we think are the best single issues of Spider-Man during that time. We'll have a brief discussion of how we approach this challenge and then go over our individual picks. If you have opinions about our picks or our methodology, we'd love to hear from you at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com. Also, if you have any single comics that you think are the best of the decade, you know, let us know. We would love to uh, hear how wrong we are. Today, we're here to crown a comic, a single issue, the best comic of the decade. And Mark, I think we have to say this because some people are going to call us out and say, wait a minute, didn't the new decade start at the start of 2020? And we're, we're doing this now not because 2020 is a lost year that we all never want to think about again. <laughs> but we are, we are decade truthers. So, Mark, well, what, I mean, like, what, let's, what do we I mean, mean But let's be real this? here. It's, there is no year zero. So, I, you know, like, what's, what's the 10-year period? I mean, it's, it's, it's 01 to, to zero. That's, that's, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You know what I mean? Like, so let's, let's, that's, you know, you could say that we're wrong, but we're not wrong. That's, that's, that's how it works. You know, like it didn't never started at year zero. The first decade was AD one to 10. All right. So that's what we're doing. 2011 to 2020 is our, is the period from which we have, have selected these issues from, because that's the decade. Damn it. I say it. I, I so I so say it. And I agree with you. And because no one is here to argue with us about it, it is now truth and the law of the land. And I also thought like, you know, it's a new year. That's kind of a good time to look back. But also like, Mark, this year marks like the eighth year that we've been doing this podcast, if you can believe it. Not that eight is a special number in any significant way, but I thought it's like almost a decade and and we've covered a lot of the books that we're going to be talking about tonight in ex- extreme detail on our show over the years. And, and also because I, I noticed that the start of big time was exactly 10 years ago in January. So it's kind of an interesting like line of demarcation in terms of kind of choosing a comic to define, you know, this era as we're kind of concluding what's called like the first half of Spencer's run and all of Dan Slott's time as a solo uh, person on the title. So it, it kind of an interesting parameters for a discussion like this. Although I will say we're going to cover all comics, not just amazing Spider-Man proper. When we considered this, you know, we were thinking about everything. Although I think our answers kind of lean a little more heavily just towards ASM proper. You want to talk about, I guess, some of the parameters that we set in terms of why we what we considered it the best comic i mean you know i think i if i could start with one of my parameters i mean like obviously there there are some great spider-man stories from the past 10 years but even if the comics we ultimately selected kind of semi-spoiler alert did kind of feed into larger arcs i feel that the fact that these function so well as kind of a singular comic that played a big role and and frankly like that kind of winnows the list down substantially when you consider how a lot of comics uh, are written today like Less rights, maybe, <laughs> or less remains. Sorry, <laughs> LR, whatever LR stands for, I keep forgetting. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, it's really funny because looking back through this, and I literally went on like my Marvel Unlimited and set the parameters for the past decade. Every book that Spider-Man appeared in, 
and just went through my list, you know, and, and highlighted the ones that stood out to me. And I'll talk about some runner ups, you know, see whether you agree ones that, that you considered as well for the list. For me, it became very apparent that so many stories are now told in these mega arcs. You know, it, it, we really don't get a lot of those single issue or two issue stories anymore, you know, but there is still, I think, a fine art to the the kind of like not done in one, but like creating a significant chapter that kind of stands on its own. I think you and I have kind of been good about highlighting this over the years, if only through the format of our podcast, which takes things literally sequentially, right? We don't do the big mega arc reviews unless it's like a B title or something that we want to highlight in some way, like life story or something like that. So like there were really good stories like life story that I would have considered for this, but there was no one issue of life story to me that really stands out in my mind. Like They were all certainly quite good to me. That story is better as a whole than it is individually beyond that kind of procedural parameter. I mean, the other thing, I mean, you know, like, Hey, we're, 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 we're talking about it. These are opinions. These are, these are instinctive opinions here, but like, I think, in both of our choices, we, we, we're, we're kind of va- putting value on a story that does something kind of different and unique and kind of stands out on its own for, for how, it, how it approached a Spider-Man story. I, I, is that a fair, a fair statement versus something there? Maybe it was a really well done story, but it was also a story that has been done in a similar vein before over the annals of history of Spider-Man. Is there a book in particular that stands out to you that you're like, I, I this would be a great one to consider, but it's just too familiar for me to really include as someone that stands on it, you know, stands out to you as the best of the decade. I w- I think immediately and frankly, in terms of things that I considered that were not from ASM, I would say that uh, spectacular. It's three ten, right? Um, if I'm the the Chip Zdarsky, the one that won the Eisner, because like I mean, great story, great comic, lovely comic. I wish the whole run that Chip Zdarsky did was written in that tone because I felt his overly jokey style, frankly, did not work in that book. Whereas that book was such a standout, and it kind of made me say, "Where the hell was this guy writing?" stories like this this whole time but at the same token like it was kind of like this let's appreciate who spider-man is kind of story which we've we've had before so many times over the course of, i mean paul jenkins basically made a living out of it when he was writing peter parker spider-man you know and and i love those stories and there's they're probably some of my favorite stories so seeing chip sadarsky do paul jenkins while i enjoyed it to me, I, I couldn't call it a best of when it feels so familiar in terms of the tone and the theme of it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he, not to mention that Tom Taylor did a very similar story in Friendly Neighborhood just like a month or two prior, you know, with another kind of kid who collects or sick child storyline. Um, not That's not to reduce Zadarsky's book. But you're right. That's a very good issue, but it didn't quite make the top of our list. What about... Um, I was going to say, frankly, a few, not to interrupt you, but frankly, a few months later, Dan Slott then did it with 801. You know what I mean? But like, I felt like that had a different kind of tone only because it felt more like, while it was a spidey appreciation story, it was also kind of Dan Slott reflecting on his own time with the character. So like, there's a part of me that actually prefers Dan Slott's to Chip Zdarsky's, but... Neither one of those is our is our best stuff pick. So let's just be clear here. 
Yeah, well, I mean, th- that story really kind of brings up another interesting angle that this could be approached from, which is the kind of like metatextual uh, commentary and the kind of place in history. Like I think about Amazing Spider-Man 700, which I will admit was my original pick for for this. And then rereading it today, I changed my choice. While I love that story, and I think it's probably the most fun I've had reading a Spider-Man comic in the past decade, just by the pure nature of I needed to get to the comic book store like on Christmas day. I think it was released what on like Christmas Eve or whatever. I had to get there. Like nothing was going to stop me. And every page turn of that book was like just nail biting anxiety. It was so fun. Like I've never been more invested in Spidey comics, but rereading it, it did feel like, you know, it, 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 it was really relying on the time and place. You know, I don't feel like it really used all of the comics medium as an art form to its maximum potential in the way that I feel like my choice does. So, like, that was one that I think time has still held up as great, but it didn't maintain the emotions that I invested in it the first time that I read it. I think actually my Acing Spider-Man 800, I find a more emotionally raw book today than 700, even though at the time 700 was a book I liked a lot more, you know, just kind of other things to consider is like divorcing it from the day it released. Was that something you considered? When you texted me this suggestion, let's do this. I think I immediately gave you my choice. Let's let's be clear. We're talking best here, and I'm and by best we need like I'm talking like the narrative structure, the art, how it all works, how it's all executed. But the same token, like I'm a I'm a historian at heart, Dan. So like I want to like you know like the reason part of what stood out to me about my comic was it just felt like in terms of impact on the character and the universe. Like it 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 just had it was it was such a gut punch in terms of how it. You know, me reading it for the first time and being like, holy crap, this is really happening. You know what I mean? And like, I I feel like there's been so few comics over the years that upon first read gave me that kind of just visceral reaction to it. And I, I feel like, you know, 700 did, but 700 was more about you already kind of knew what was going to happen at the end of seven because, you know, Superior had already been solicited. We knew it was coming out like what, like a week later. And we knew that, you know, that Superior was going to be Doc Ock. So it was like, all right, we know Spider-Man's going to lose or Peter Parker's going to lose somehow. It's so it's the anxiety of going through page by page and like, how is he going to lose? And like that, that made it riveting, but like that kind of, whereas the book I picked it was like such a it just felt so shocking to me at the time. And I and I and, you know, like for that, I think it's just that's where it's brilliant. You know, like like never has a comic shocked me quite so so viscerally before. Well, you're knocking on the door of revealing what what book it is you chose. I do want to just before we get to that really quickly, I do want to kind of seize upon this idea of influence. I think, you know, influence is really important. And I think the book I chose does have a substantial influence on where the book would go for a while, even to today, I would argue, and I'll make that argument, but it wasn't everything for me. Like influence wasn't the major contributor. So like I could say like Spider-Man number one, which I really loved, not Spider-Man two, number one, which I really didn't love. (laughs) Uh, But if we do a worst of the decade list, you might see Spider-Man two, but Spider-Man number one, probably the most, maybe one of the most influential comics Uh, of the decade, right? I mean, like this whole universe 
crossing over thing has become almost a key component of Spider-Man mythos at this point, you know, much to my chagrin, even though I love Into the Spider-Verse above all others. It's not an element of the character that I think is a key component, but that book, whether intending to or not, really kind of unlocked that door, you know, for that kind of thing. But it's not my favorite book of the decade, nor do I think it's the best utilization of comics, uh, you know, in Spider-Man of the decade, but certainly really influential. So, you know, there's other books like that, that, you know, I, I think about it didn't make my choice because of that, that just because of that reason. So anyway, that's the last point I wanted to make in terms of my consideration. So Mark, all this being said, we are, we are, we are knocking on the door of revealing. We're tap dancing um, here, right? So yeah, yeah, that maybe that's the better metaphor. So Mark, why don't you stop tap dancing as much as I enjoy it and tell us What is your Amazing Spider-Man single-issue comic of the decade? Well, I ended up going with Amazing Spider-Man 698, which, of course, is the prelude to the Dying Wish arc, but I think totally functions by itself as a standalone issue. I mean, yes, you, of course, want to know what the hell happens next when you get to the end of it. (laughs) But, like, if this was just a comic that you handed somebody and, you know, said, okay, this is is a Spider-Man comic, what do you think? I think that they would be completely flabbergasted by what happened here. I mean, then of course this is Dan Slott and uh, it's it's Rich Elson, right? Who's who's not even like a big time artist on the book, but like the art the artwork is very functional and 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 fits the story well. The 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 whole thing is paced, I think, very very well. I mean, like what I always found so disarming and wonderful about this comic is it kind of starts off as this. It's it's like that day in the life of Spider-Man comic. I mean, again, kind of like what I was talking about with Chip Zdarsky and and Dan Slott and Paul Jenkins. Like the let's appreciate what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. And he's like, I I I feel so free swinging from building to building. And you know, oh look, there's MJ. And 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 as you're reading it, you do get a sense like this doesn't totally sound like. Peter's inner monologue here like there's like almost like too much navel gazing going on which is I mean you know Peter is notoriously very much in his head this was there was just something a little different about it that of course is the red flag galore uh and in the in the background you is the fact that you know Spider-Man's longtime nemesis Doc Ock he is in the final hours of his life is his his disease-ridden body, which has been brutalized by Spider-Man over the years, is is dying. You know, he had his last gambit with Ends of the Earth, which is not one of the more memorable stories of the of the last decade. <laughs> you know, so Spider-Man gets gets called to the raft to to visit Doc Ock on his deathbed with the Avengers. And again, like the interactions with the Avengers, there's just something a little weird about it. And of course, like the big reveal and you know for anyone who was in a you know in a cave for the duration of 2012 to 2013 is that spider-man is actually Otto octavius and inside doc ock's dying body is peter parker and like that reveal to this day like because it's you know doc ock keeps saying peter parker peter Parker, like like croaking it out and you're like you know and everyone of course is like why is he saying peter parker and what he's actually saying is i'm peter parker and it's just such a brilliant reveal to what would then be 
the next year and a half of insanity on this book, right? I mean, like, this sets up the entire Superior era. This is basically like the Superior Spider-Man pilot issue, right? Like, say what you will about this era. We we have not, we are not shy to the fact that we hold it very fondly. We think that this these were great comics. I know people disagree with that and to each their own, but this is the perfect setup for that. Like, there is no, the, the, like, it's, to me, it's the most creative and inventive and masterfully executed double fake that we've ever gotten in a Spider-Man comic. I mean, for every crappy goblin reveal we've ever gotten this, like <laughs> this is the best. This blows up. Like, like this, this just goes to show take off the stocking cap and the goblin face. And you can actually do a reveal right in Spider-Man comics and also don't tease it for 50 issues, you know? So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I love this issue. Um, I'm, I'm curious to unpack this really quickly in, in two different ways, which is I love all the little elements of this book. I mean, the art is really, I think, noteworthy in how unnoteworthy it is. It feels very classic. It feels like an inventory story and, you know, and kind of forgettable. And everything is rosy. Although Peter, there's something a little more stern and serious about him than, you know, normal. His kind of highlighting his powers and over highlighting them kind of like goes back to like the Stan Lee, Jerry Conway eras of how a Spider-Man book was written. Wasn't too much of a divergence from how Dan Slott had been writing it. It's just enough that you're like, I remember reading this the first time and thinking, this is a really forgettable comic. Can, can this really be what this comic is? just like a really boilerplate Spider-Man issue. But all of those choices are deliberate. You know, and I think people have criticized Dan Slott for uh, how he writes Peter Parker, people including us, right? Like that he never really got Peter Parker's voice. In many ways, this issue is, like you said, the pilot for Superior, but it's kind of a case in point of what Dan Slott was getting at is that there really is only such a like fine level of difference between Peter Parker and Otto Octavius at points in their lives that you, you can detect it, but it isn't obvious is kind of case in point for the all of superior. Again, we could say, say what you want to say about how Dan Slott wrote Peter, but like even knowing that, like you knew that there was still just something not quite right there to know that if when the, after the reveal is made that it all makes sense how it wasn't Peter the whole time. You know what I mean? Like, like he, he clearly got Peter enough to know how to write, not Peter, you know, <laughs> like if that makes sense, like it, 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 and, and I always feel like that was the tightrope that Dan Slott walked so masterfully during the duration of superior was like, yes, that there, there, there were similarities, but where they diverged was, was distinct and had enough of its own voice where it, it would work like there was never a point during superior where i was like i felt like even when otto started to become more of a hero where i felt that he was becoming peter because he he never was you know like that there was always just enough distinction and differentiation there where you knew that this guy just wasn't enough didn't have enough of the soul of peter to be able to truly be peter and this book just like you know proves that that point from Jump Street. Like, like it just something felt kind of, again, soulless is the word I kind of come to. I mean, you mentioned sternness, but like it's, it's, it, it, there's lacking like an emotional level there. Like it's, there's like a, an emotional distance to the character, you know, for all the times that, you know, Dan kind of wrote 
Peter a little juvenile or whatever, like there was still kind of a soul to the character that I think rang true to who Peter was. This is also one of the rare books that like the minute you end it, you want to reread it again. So it gives you that double joy of, uh, you know, it's almost like a double length comic without actually being. They should put that on the cover. Only 21 pages, but double the length. They should just, but, uh, they should have released it as one of those flip book comics, but it just would have been the same comic both times. Just, you know, the other time upside down and you know what I mean? Like, like one of those 90s style yeah, flip absolutely. books. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of one of those things that like as much uh, flack as we might have given Dan Slott over, over the years for various issues. Like this is why you read Dan Slott comics is because like every once in a while he'll just do something completely out there and blow you away. I'm thinking about like his like infinite time loop story from uh, the Silver Surfer run, or even more recently, the, the, the thing, Alicia Masters honeymoon issue with Fantastic Four. He, he'll do something that just does a home run and makes his books really memorable. And, you know, as much as, you know, I, I have been off and on enjoying Nick Spencer's run, you know, I considered his issue one for this for this list. It's not my choice, but I don't think he has you know any stories that are quite nearly as memorable in his first two years as any of the stories in the first two years that Dan Slott did. You know, you might not have liked them all, but when you liked it, it was a grand slam. Not to make this like a Slott versus Spencer thing, but like you know, the other thing to note here is like how this in six ninety eight you have this story which, like you said, kind of starts off like what is this, an inventory book? You know what I mean? Like, what, what what's going on here? And then when you when you get to the end and you actually, you know, realize what, what just happened, like, it, it is a very full story that's not, like, overly decompressed or anything. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this, it's, a, it's perfectly paced. It gets, you know, there's a clear beginning, middle, and end, and then P.S., there's two more chapters after that, but, like, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's a lot of story here. Like, it ends up being a lot more story than you realize on first blush when you when you know what happens at the end. And, you know, like, this is not just for Nick Spencer, but I think for a lot of writers in comics, like, you know, in terms of how to pace and, and work out a story that, that has to pay off even further, like, you know, like, they should take note of something like this. Like, I, I think a lot of writers struggle with pacing. I think, like, you know, the, the decompressed storytelling mode that you know, Bendis made so famous has really taken uh, ugly grasp of comics lately. And like something like this is refreshing about how uncompressed it is. I think that's what made the the superior era so notable is like for, for a lot of its run, I, I think especially for the first half of its run, it was kind of like one and done check-ins on the world of this superior Spider-Man that would get upgraded slowly but it wasn't until like halfway through when you get these longer story arcs. I think once they realized that it was a hit, you know, and, and I actually think it got worse once once it started doing that. Um, I think you and I have well documented that like around the time of Wacker's descent, the book was not quite the same. Yeah, the 2099 run is probably where it started to, to, to shake off a little bit, I would say. Would you, would you agree with that? I agree with that. So let me ask you one more question before we move on is. I remember reading Chasing Amazing Blog at the time that this book came out. And this is before you and I ever did this podcast, right? And, you know, I think you were kind to this book then. But I do remember issue 700, you wrote this piece. And I know that you hate me referring to this piece, that you were kind of like done, right? Like you you were like, this is it. 
You know, I, I, I'm not like, this is the end of my collection, which I think you quickly righted when you came to your senses a little bit and read issue one of superior or whatever, and realized it would still be a book about Peter Parker. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I do remember reading that. And, but now to see you list this as the best of the decade, I'm curious what your journey with this book has been, you know, over time. Right. Well, I mean, again, and this is where it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier in terms of like legacy and impact and things like that. I think we're allowed to evolve and change as people. And, you know, like that's, you know, nothing, you know, I think it says less about someone if they just kind of hold firm to a point of view, even if it's clear that they're being a little pigheaded about it. But, you know, at the time, it felt like here we go again. You know, it's like it's the 90s all over again. You know, like it's not just Spider-Man, but there are other characters that, you know, they were doing away with. I mean, they had just done away with Ultimate Peter Parker, what, like a year earlier. You know what I mean? Like it just it just felt exhausting. I think that was kind of and, you know, whenever I go back to when I stopped collecting in the 90s, it was during the, the peak of the Clone Saga. And what I always like to say is I just felt exhausted buying and reading Spider-Man comics because it just wasn't fun anymore. I just felt like I was trying to keep up with whatever the next gimmick was. So probably what changed with me was kind of the realization that this wasn't a gimmick, you know, like this was clearly meant to tell a larger story about Peter, about Otto, about other superheroes and the structure of superhero stories. And, you know, once once I read more and more Superior and saw that this wasn't just like a cheap shock value gimmick, I think it, it, it really hardened my appreciation for what Slot did both overall, but also with this specific comic. Does that make sense? Is that is that a good defense of my journey, I guess? Or... <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you used to write the gimmick or good uh, uh, column over at CBR. So, you know, I, that, you know, I could see you kind of keeping a spotlight on that. I think it's true, right? Like sometimes these things are just done for shock value and it's hard to trust them. And I think there's an inherent cynicism, cynicism built in, right? Like this week we got uh, spoilers for issue 55. We got the like supposed death of Mary Jane. And I don't buy it for a second. You, you know what I mean? Like, and I could get all angry about it or upset, although, you know, my feelings on that are probably more complicated than most people's, but you're right. Sometimes it takes a minute to see if the, if it is just a gimmick or if there really is some substance there. I'm not knocking you for changing your mind. I think that's actually really cool. And I think why it makes it worthwhile to look back on the decade like this now that we're so far removed from it. Great pick, Mark. Amazing Spider-Man 698 is one of my favorites and certainly could have been my pick if you hadn't chosen it. So, um, yes, but, you know, if you want to hash out some of these discussions with us, why don't you come check us out in the Slack? Right. That's right. If you find the show entertaining and valuable, please come and check out our Spider Slack where the conversation continues. There is a link in the description to this episode, whether you're on YouTube or on iTunes, that'll lead you to our Spider Slack community where we just talk about Spider-Man all day. It's like an online forum of all of our fans and honestly, my favorite place on the internet to talk about Spider-Man comics and everything. So uh, come check us out in the Slack if you get a chance. Mark, back to it. Uh, we're going to talk about my pick now. My pick for best of the decade is... Drum roll, please. Amazing Spider-Man number 656. 
if that doesn't immediately jump out at you, this is part two of the no one dies storyline. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, 655 is like the really notable one from the the no one dies (laughs) storyline. I believe I texted you this afternoon saying... Wait, 656 or 655, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I mean, uh, you know, it's not even got Spider-Man in his red and blues on the cover. Why 656 instead of 655? Well, l- let me just say this. I think 655 is one of the best comics of the decade. You know, we d- even did an Essentials episode on this storyline. You really want to hear us get into real detail about both parts of it. But for me, 655 is really kind of a eulogy of an issue and and a kind of an exposure of Spider-Man's mindset, which is certainly something that defined Dan Slott's run on the book. Uh, He was really a lot about, you know, exploring, you know, Spider-Man's mental state, you know, even, even getting really extreme into it in Superior, as we, you know, talked about. 656 is like a really solid Spider-Man adventure story that carries over the kind of emotional weight of 655, is informed by it, and gives the book a place to go with it. It's just a really elegantly done story that you could read on its own that has an arc for the character and multiple characters within it. Some really beautiful dynamic action. We can't lie. When we read Spider-Man comics... It's fun to see him beat up some guys or do big dramatic things. And also, uh, you know, as much as 655, I think, is the more innovative visual comic, it does things of like swirling into Peter's memories and silence and stuff like that. It's really like a paragon of comic book making and what comic books can do as a storytelling device that other mediums can't do. I think 656 takes that same kind of ethos and applies it and, and, and artistic mentality that, you know, Dan Slott would revisit in 801 with Marcos Martin. But I think it applies it to a classic, a classically told Spider-Man story. And, and in many ways, I think it is probably one of the most elegantly told classic type Spider-Man stories that exists. So if you don't remember, in this story, Spider-Man has lost his spider sense and is called to address the villain Massacre, this kind of serial killer or, I guess, terrorist character who is, he's basically a gun-toting madman. And his signature trait is that he is unfeeling. He had a bit of glass fall through his head, pierce his brain, and now he has no empathy or sympathy for anyone. And so he stands as kind of a a stark counter to Spider-Man as this very emotive, empathetic superhero. You know, in the wake of Marla Jameson's death, Spider-Man has declared that he will not let anyone else suffer at the hands of his villains like she did. And he is going to, in many ways, supersede the police and stop this lunatic, if, if you will. So that's kind of the story. And by the end, Spider-Man has invented a new costume, which I think is one of the more odd-looking Spider-Man costumes. Um, The cover, I think, of this issue is really goofy, but I think the way the costume is presented in the issue is actually really cool. Like, it's very Batman, but there is something kind of creepy Spider-Man about it. And so it's a lot, it, it does that thing that I love about old Spider-Man comics, which is kind of obsessing over the minutia of how his powers work, 
we get a kind of cool thing here that says like he can't swing around the city comfortably anymore because his spider sense is gone. His spider tracers don't work because his spider sense is gone. And this new suit can't really, it's too heavy to swing from. So even though it's bulletproof, he's got to manipulate it in a different way. And that feels uniquely Spider-Man-y to me. And there's barely any Spider-Man in this issue. It is very much about Peter Parker and the people in his life and how he's handling it. You know, he goes back to Horizon Labs and listens to his friends discuss how they would handle this. It's just a classic Spider-Man tale with this incredible level of artistry over it. Big, splashy letters that fill up the pages and, and create dynamic layouts. To me, this is like the height of, I mean, I think we all know that Marcus Martin is probably one of the best artists to ever work on Spider-Man, even if he didn't really get a run. And to me, this is like part of that oeuvre is iconic images page to page, the rain pouring down on people, blood splashing, Spider-Man bold and standing on a rooftop. And this really touching dynamic ending where he throws himself in front of the bullets as Jameson losing his mind in a blinded fury orders the cops to fire on this man uh, and potentially risk the innocent civilians. And Spider-Man again risks his life to save this very killer, proclaiming that no one would die, not even the bad guy. And to me, that's like the height of like who Spider-Man is. And speaking of influence would go on to be something that I've actually gotten really sick of, (laughs) which is exploring this no kill code in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. But to me, if you do it like this, I'm okay with it. So that's my reasoning why 656. I wonder, Mark, am I, would you have chosen 655? Like, you know, does this issue stand out for you? I think you actually kind of sold me more on this one rather than, like, yes, I think on first blush, I would be like, well, 655, of course. But like, again, like 655 is in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, the new 21st century version of, you know, the floating heads of, of guilt for Spider-Man story, which we've gotten before. I mean, we've gotten it before, you know, like there's just no way around it. And what I'm about to say might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but part of the brilliance of 656 is it's probably the most Lee Dicko story that Dan Slott has ever written for Spider-Man and that it's, but it's like kind of amplified for the modern era, but like it's very Lee Ditko like that, those first, I mean, not even just the first 38 issues, but like, especially like those first like 10 issues where we're still kind of learning who Spider-Man is. And it's like, like you said, like the, the, the obsession with the minutia of how the power, because now that we take the spider sense away, it's almost like he's completely learning how to be Spider-Man again without this one thing at his disposal. And I think that's important. Like that, like that kind of focus on Peter, figuring it out and how to be Spider-Man. But then there's, you know, like the new villain of the month. And it's like, you know, he goes in there the first time completely unprepared, gets shot in the side, which to me is still one of the most shocking panels I've ever seen in a Spider-Man book. Like I still like, like, like the second you brought this comic up, I like immediately thought, I think of two things. I think of Spider-Man falling off, you know, while web slinging because the, the webbing doesn't stick properly to the, to the bricks. And then I think of him getting shot. Like, those are always the two things that stand out to me about this issue. Because, like, they were both at the time just so, like, oh, my goodness. Like, I never thought, like, 
I never thought I'd be seeing something like that in a Sp- Spider-Man book because the spider sense is just something you take for granted that things like that won't happen. So you have Peter being completely unprepared the first time around and then having to like go back to the drawing board. Like, you know, think about like his fights with Sandman and Electro uh, those first few times, you know, like the Vulture. There's always like that that learning curve for the character. And it's like, how do how, OK, I, I need to be smarter. I need to be savvier. You know, I can go in with armor. But like you say, that's going to slow me down. Blah, blah, blah. So like it's like watching Peter kind of use his brain to to overcome a situation it's not just about his grit or his resolve which are great points but like you know i like that those early books focus so much on peter's wit and his intelligence and and this captures that perfectly and then like you said i mean there's the the, the no one dies mantra but like this just feels so classic yet with a new twist so that's why like i do think this was a really good choice in that regard. Like we, I don't think we've really gotten many books quite like this over the last 10 years. Like this is, this is the biggest throwback yet, not quite throwback that we've ever gotten before. Well, when I was looking over the books, like I said earlier, so many of them are long story arcs and the ones that I was drawn to, you know, I guess the most fondly are things like even like that time door two parter. Right. Where Peter had to get through the door that saw to the future or the rage of the rhino, which I love. That's 2010. So it couldn't be included on the list. You know, and I think that's what draws me back to Brand New Day so much is just the kind of like one or two issues and then moving on that really defined the Lee Dicko and like Conway stuff with check ins on Peter's life predominantly. And that's what this issue feels like to me. And You know, when you and I feel hot or cold on on Spider-Man, I think a lot of it is me responding to books not being written like this. You know, if every two issues I got a new idea in a Spider-Man comic of him fighting a villain of the week that reflected on Peter in some way, I think that would be my ideal version of reading a Spider-Man comic rather than big six issue arcs. I say that. Uh, allowing some exception, like coming home is probably one of my favorite Spider-Man stories and it's six issue arc. But I think that's the exception. I think really Spider-Man works better when he is, the villain is not the main focus. It's about Peter and the villain is some reflection of him in some way. You know, like I even look back at like Lee Dicko stuff and it's like, look, Otto Octavius was cool when Lee Dicko, you know, worked on that character, but you know, you didn't want to spend all that much time with him. He was just a cool adversary for Spider-Man in some way. I miss the era of the kind of one and two done story arcs. And yes, this is part two of an arc, but I really think you could read it on its own with very little context and it would stand as its own story, you know, as a really strong part of the Spider-Man mythos. Did you reread this before we kind of, um, you know, did the show? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like it, it, it was a, it's such a fun read to like even go back and do, you know, and like talk about Chasing Amazing again. I was very I, this was I was actually pretty cranky about this comic when I first read it, not because I didn't enjoy the comic, but like, again, like the spider sense element. I was like, is this just another, you know, I, I guess I really was focused on gimmicks in 2012 because <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, this just feels like another gimmick. You know, what, what What are we really trying to approve without this spider sense? It's just another challenge. But again, like, you know, in retrospect, it was well done and I feel like it was it was, it was was commentary on, on Peter and how is he going to 
how's he going to get out of this one kind of a thing? You know what I mean? Which is like, like you said, you go back to those Lee Dicko issues and that's what it was. And yeah, you didn't necessarily want to spend time with the villains in terms of them as people, but like they were cool enough to want to like be checking in. And like you said, they were also a commentary on Peter and Spider-Man in some way, you know, Electro and Doc Ock. I mean, you know, Vulture, all of these guys are, you know, like the, the inversion of power and responsibility and, and, you know, in this case with with Massacre, it, it's, you know, in telling the story of No One Dies, it was the perfect villain to introduce at this time. I, get, I, I always feel like I have to, like, preface things about compliments about Dan Slott because of just how polarizing he can be in some of the less favorable places to talk about Spider-Man on the Internet. <laughs> Not the slack necessarily, but but the fact of the matter is, like, he he really had... When, when he was on point, he really had a knack of just like all all the strings just came together in the right way, you know, and like this is a this is a perfect example of that. Like it's like he wanted to tell the story about Spider-Man and his you know responsibility to the point that like now no one was going to die. So who, who does he have to face off against in his first like trial in that in that era? But literally like a villain who just like you say, has no ability to feel whatsoever and will kill indiscriminately. And like, how is he going to, how is he going to survive that? Especially with his current power set. So it's, it's, it's just a brilliant little twist of storytelling that makes everything click perfectly. And I just want to like, you know, just shout out one more time, Marcos Martin and his artwork on this book, which I think is so stunning. And to make me love this comic not this comic, this costume, that final image of, of Spider-Man standing on the roof in the rain is iconic, even if it's more of a Batman image than it is a Spider-Man <laughs> image. But when I think about this book, I just think about him standing there sullen on that rooftop. It's really powerful. So I just wanted to give him a shout out for his artistry. So yeah, those are our picks. Amazing Spider-Man 698 and Amazing Spider-Man 656. I thought this was a lot of fun. I'm sure people will agree and disagree with with our hopefully well-articulated takes. I hope in 10 years, Mark, you and I can do this again. We'll be able to, but, you know, hopefully we'll, the, the, the choices will be both difficult but meaningful, like the way these were. <laughs> I mean, this was tough. I mean, how do you judge one over the other? So anybody who's like, I disagree with you guys, it's like, well, look. There's a dozen other ones we could have chosen. And if we didn't say yours, trust us, it was probably on the list. But yeah, this was fun, Mark. I, I'm, I'm eager to do this again. If, if you guys found this show entertaining and valuable, please con- consider supporting us. You can recommend Amazing Spider-Man to a friend. And if you're able, become a member on our Patreon. Yeah, we can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members. And we owe the show's success to every single one of them. Uh, We're constantly making exclusive content for our members. For example, this week, Patreon members will hear Dan and me talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 54.LR and 55, the conclusion, more or less, maybe possibly, eh, of the Last Remains arc. Last Remains, not Last last Rites. I got to remember that. (laughs) (laughs) That will be important for the review. Yeah, no doubt. So if you enjoyed these conversations, why not take that $3.99 and put it towards a month subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. And when a new Spider-Man comic comes out, you'll hear our Patreon exclusive review of the podcast every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the very same week that it comes out. 
And if you contribute $10 or more a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by the fantastic artist Nick Cagnetti. But we know it's a hard time for everybody, as it is for us too. So we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening, sharing the podcast with friends, and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And again, a thank you to all the members who already make this show possible. It's only thanks to you that Mark and I can continue to do this. But alas, Dan, it is that time, time for all the good things to come to an end, including the end of the decade by our parameters. (laughs) So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this special episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. As always, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider-Madge, Plus, our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. And if you're tuning in live, don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. And if you missed out on Amazing Spider Talk Live this time, we'll be back soon on YouTube. So go there and subscribe and click on the bell to stay on top of all the new live recordings that we'll be doing in the future. But as always, this will remain a podcast first and foremost. That will always remain consistent, just like how we end the show. That's with our motto. So Mark... Until 2031, when Spider-Man comics are printed at home with 3D printers in our living room, what's our motto? I want to live in that future. Our motto, of course, is with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider-Talk. Don't, don't miss the next